0: So we we have been spending some time in um, this Advent season reflecting on the idea that God is with us. That in all of these traditional Christmas passages, they all at some point end or have this promise in them where God says, hey, I just want you to know I am with you. And Jesus is coming and he is going to be God with us. We looked at God is with Mary, Hail Mary Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with you. The nobody girl in the nowhere town who was under all kinds of pressure with no power, God wanted her to know, I am with you. We looked at Joseph. Joseph, the righteous man who was afraid. We noted that there's nothing more dangerous in our world today than the righteous person who is afraid. Um, They will do all kinds of things, but Joseph trying to do the right thing, but called to play a part. In the birth of Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. And he's reminded of that. And last week we looked at the crazy grandmas. The crazy grandmas in the the genealogy in Matthew. The four women who Matthew is sure to name in the genealogy. Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Even though they were women surrounded by scandal, God wants us to know that there's nothing we have done and nothing that has been done to us that disqualifies us from the salvation that he is meant to bring. And Matthew goes out of his way to make sure that we know that there is no scandal, there is no failure that disqualifies you from the truth that God is with you and God has come near to you. And so this morning at Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve, I love Christmas Eve. It's always been such a day of anticipation, even as a kid. Anybody else like, Christmas Eve, it was always like you woke up on Christmas Eve, you're like, when do we get to go over to whoever's house? For us, it was Uncle Lynn, like, when are we going to go over, and when are we going to open up some presents, and is there something for me, just as a a kid, and I think that, that idea of Christmas Eve continues to stay with me even today. There's such a great anticipation and excitement about us, and for most of us, today is the day where we begin our family gatherings. Can I get an amen, or maybe a groan? I don't know, I mean, I don't know what your family's like. Like some of you guys are like, I'm crossing my fingers that everything goes well. Like you don't know how everybody's family is, but there's always a sense of anticipation of that day, right? And so the beginning of our family Christmas gatherings is today. And so what I want to do is just look at the passage that we have here in the Gospel of Luke and just orient ourselves toward Jesus as we enter into really the heart of our Christmas season where we begin to celebrate with family and friends, so if you have your Bible, let's open up to Luke chapter two, and let's take a look at what God has for us today. In Luke chapter two, our passage highlights the birth of Jesus. Actually, this chapter that uh, that we had read for us this morning uh, is actually the longest and most detailed passage in the whole Bible about the birth of Jesus. More information about the birth of Jesus in this one passage, in these fourteen verses. or 20 verses, I should say, than, uh, than we have anywhere else in the New Testament. And it also highlights not only the birth of Jesus, but it highlights the sort of pressure that Jesus was born into. And Luke wants to make it clear that Jesus is born into this pressure. As we think about this idea of God with us, we're also recognizing that we are in a world that would just as soon have us give up on Jesus, or just as soon call someone else Lord, or King, or someone else that had influence on us, and we recognize that not only are, are we under pressure, but this story, the birth of Jesus, happens under pressure. And so as we look at it this morning, we just want to note that God seems eager to enter into that pressure. It's the sort of pressure that was there before Jesus was born. It's the sort of pressure that was there when he was born, and it's the sort of pressure that continues on even today. And God says, look, I want to enter into a world that is experiencing particular pressures, and they're not my pressures. Like, God's like, I have not put this pressure on you, but there's other forces that are putting pressure on God's people. And so as we look at this today, this pressure I want to take a look and just note a little bit of this. So look at verse 1. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And now these, if you're like me, okay, these verses are what we call flyover verses. Right? You're like, look, I don't, know what the, I don't know who Quirinius is, and I kind of know about Caesar Augustus because of the TikTok trend about the Roman, how often people think of the Roman Empire. Anybody? They, we, have, we have laughter from the young people, but everyone else is like, what are you talking about? Okay, all that to say, if you know you know, I'll talk to you later. Okay, uh, but this idea that these, these verses, you're like, why are these even in here? Like maybe this idea that um, perhaps... Um, Luke is, is using it to set the stage for the circumstance of Jesus' birth. Maybe historical proof text, like, yes, Jesus was born into the actual world where there's actual governors. Maybe there's his historical sense. But this idea Luke is saying, look, I need you to understand the circumstances into which God chooses to send his son and insert himself into the historical record. I need you to know that this pressurized world that Jesus is born into and the conflict that is really to come, this is is foreshadowing. And so I just want to note a few things about this. You're like, uh, a whole sermon on flyover verses, this is just like you, Pastor Craig. Just hang with me. Okay. So it says that a a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I don't know if you guys know a lot about the Roman emperors, but um, Caesar Augustus, his actual name was? Okay, Octavian. Octavian was his real name. Um, and he was the son of Julius Caesar. Anyone? Thank you very much. Okay, we're on, we're on track. Now, um, here's the thing about, about Caesar Augustus. The, 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 the August one. The magnificent one. Self-named, humbly, self-named himself the magnificent one. Caesar the Magnificent. And he was the one... Before him, there was all kinds of wars over the region. See, after the, the Greek empire fell, the Romans are starting to come in, but there's all these wars going on. It was under Caesar Augustus where the, he, he gathered such power around him that he, he gave what they called the Roman peace. And he was the one who stopped the wars. And so there is this Caesar Augustus was looked at and revered By other people, and actually not just revered, but feared. The Roman peace was because of fear that he might exercise his power. And after an age of wars and catastrophes, Augustus was the one who brought peace. The Roman peace. He was called, in the Greek world, he was called a soter, a savior. And he called himself kurios, which meant Lord. Now, does this sound familiar? Like, if you're Jewish and you're like, hey, there's this guy and he calls himself Savior and Lord and he brings peace. And he's like, so all this to say that he calls himself, actually what he calls himself in the Roman world, they actually called the Caesars the Son of God. So you have this man, Caesar Augustus, and there had always been this veneration of Roman leaders after their deaths, but Augustus was the only one to be revered, or the first one to be revered, while he was still alive. So you got to imagine, here's this guy, he basically rules over the known world, he calls himself Lord, and he has other people call himself the Son of God, and he actually has a cult, a temple cult, to himself. So Caesar Augustus, the magnificent one, the majestic, the venerable, the worthy of reverence, this is the world into which Luke is writing. What does he do? He commands, he sends a dogma, a decree. Everyone needs to go and register. And Natalie brought up a good point. He, he's counting all the people. He's counting all the people. Now, the issue might not be necessarily about he just wants to know how many people. Why does anybody get registered? The reason is because of taxes. Now, we, you might be, look, we have accountants in here and tax season is important to them. Um, and, and some of you are like, you don't like tax season. Look, if you lived in the ancient world, you would have really not like tax season. Because here's the deal. We pay taxes to a government to provide services, right? Okay, and we we go and we pay our taxes. But what we don't have to do when we go pay our taxes is we don't have to like bow our knee before the government. We don't have to light incense in tribute to the government. We don't have to worship or offer a sacrifice or a tribute to the government. We just, we pay our fair share. That's the idea. And this is, so what we read about here, this is a pre-democratic society where you have one guy who rules everything and he decided to raise the taxes. And what he wanted to do is it says that he, he sent everyone in the known inhabited world. He sends out a decree. Every living person needs to register so that they can pay tribute to me. This is, this, that's the first two verses of Luke chapter 2. The Caesar who self-identifies as a god, I want to find out how many people there are so that everyone can pay tribute to me. And what we're going to find is that God has something to say about that. All right, let's keep going, let's keep going. So he says, all the world, all the unknown inhabited world, and uh, Luke, so Luke is doing something in this, first, in this first verse. Jesus is going to be born into this world, into this type of world where a human ruler will inflate his own importance and demand allegiance and compel people not only to pay, but to travel to get themselves ready to pay and show that allegiance. And what Luke wants to do, and what God is showing, is that Jesus, who is the Son of God, not even his own birth parents are immune to this kind of pressure. This is the world that Jesus is born into. Let's look at uh, 2.3. So it says, all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So what we, and, and to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Joseph is clearly subject to the new law. It requires him to travel about a hundred miles from Nazareth to Galilee, a Nazareth in Galilee, to Bethlehem in the hill country of Judea, which is about 10 miles away from Jerusalem. So he and Mary formed a family unit, even though they were not married yet. We talked about betrothal as this official engagement. They had formed a family unit. So Joseph travels to his relative's house in in his ancestral home. He is from the lineage of David. His family is from Bethlehem. And so he travels to his family's hometown, his ancestral home, to bethlehem it would have been likely that joseph would have had cousins aunts uncles in that town now i know i know that in modern christmas plays okay there's always the scene where like they come into town and mary's on a donkey and she's like really pregnant like she's like in transition like okay and um and he and the, he's knocking on doors and he's like can we come in and they're like there's no room slam the door like you you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, look, that didn't happen, okay? I don't want to get into it, but um, that that didn't, that actually didn't happen. It was, this was Joseph's ancestral hometown. Like, we have a friend, um, we have a friend in Beth, actually in Bethlehem, his name is Johnny, Johnny and Rula, we were just in Turkey with them. They are shop owners in Bethlehem, they're they're, uh, uh, Christians that live in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem's in a rough spot right now. Um, They kind of canceled Christmas celebrations because uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, okay? Um, But, uh, it's funny because um, when I talk to Johnny and I ask him about people, he's always like, that's my cousin. So like we were, we were there and he was like, hey, I have a, f- I have a friend who owns a, um, a restaurant and it's by Biola and I was, we were talking about this. And I said, oh, I've been to that. And he's all, yeah, that's my cousin. And um, we went in one night, we went and have dinner at, um, in Bethlehem with him and his wife and his family. And it was wonderful, but he sent, he sent a cousin or he sent a driver and he's all, yeah, that's my cousin. And then um, I don't know if you guys know in, uh, in Bethlehem there was a, a famous British street artist named Banksy. Do you guys know Banksy? Okay, thank you very much. Those, some people are like, okay, look it up, Google search. Not now, later. Okay, but Banksy did a bunch of um, a bunch of street art in Bethlehem, and um, what, like there's a um, there's one with a, a dove, like a peace dove with a flak jacket on. Um, it's it's all there's a lot of irony, but it's peace. So there's a really famous one on the side of a building of someone, it's, it's this silhouette of someone throwing like a Molotov cocktail, but it's a bouquet of flowers, okay? It's beautiful. It's like, it's beautiful stuff, um, but the, the, the person who owned the house, they, they cut out the entire wall, and they sold the wall, and they, they, they like made, and I told Johnny, I said, oh, I heard that this somebody, I heard that somebody cut the wall off their house and sold it. He's all, that was my cousin! Anyway, all that to say, when Joseph arrives in Bethlehem, somebody's like, it's my cousin, right? That, that's going to happen. It's not like, so, okay. I, they're not like searching around and Mary's like, whoo, whoo. no, they, they have relatives. They know when babies come. Like, okay. It's all based on the one line in verse, um, uh, in verse 7 where it talks about there was no place for them in the end. I don't want to get into it. It's fine. Okay. The, the point is, Luke is not as much as concerned, when, when you read when that happens, it's like Jesus has nowhere to go, like the world has shut him out. But Luke is not as much about God versus the world in Luke chapter 2. What God is, what Luke is more about is it's God versus the proud in Luke chapter 2. It's the Caesar that doesn't know that Jesus is coming, but it's announced to the humble. So it's not that Jesus has nowhere to go. The humble will welcome, will welcome him in. The humble will celebrate him. It is the proud who will have no idea. And who is more humble than the night watch shepherds? Look at verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping over their, wa- their flock by night. Why by night? Okay, so shepherds are not the highest rung on the social ladder. If you had any skills, you would be working as a craftsman, as an artisan, as a, a baker. You would make sandals. You would do it something. But if you had really no marketable skills, you would watch sheep. Now, the people that this is talking about are not—they're not, not even the people that watch the sheep during the day. Even the people during the day get a break and go to, to sleep at night. It's the B team shepherds at night. So the people that are out at f- watching the flocks at night—that's the B team shepherds. Two nine, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and this is the interesting thing: that you don't get much more humble than the B team shepherds. But God seems to want his glory and his message to engulf the B-team shepherds. 2-9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, you worthless B-team shepherds. No, he didn't say that. Okay, he didn't. I'm making that part up, everybody, okay? Just to show you, like, that's, this is not the way God rolls. The angel said, Don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is not for the powerful. This is not for the influential. This is not for the strong. They will not be excluded, but this is not just for them. This will be for all the people including the B-team shepherds. For unto you is born in this day, the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Do, do you hear that too? Savior, Lord. Caesar liked to call himself Savior and Lord, and here the angel is like, hey. And when, when, when victories of the Caesar when the Caesar would win a big victory in battle, what they would do is they would, they would come back and someone would say, we bring you good news of the victory. And what is the angel saying? I'm bringing you good news. Christ the Lord is born a savior to you. Look, Luke, Luke is not accidental when he starts the passage with the Caesar who claims to be Lord, the Son of God, who wants the entire known world to pay tribute to Him? Says, Hey, bringing you good news of joy that will be for everybody, all good news of great joy that will be for all the people, a Savior, Christ the Lord. And so far, this seems right in line with what has gone up on in Luke up to this point. So in the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah in the temple, talks to him, makes it he can't talk after that. After John is born, he can talk. Angel Gabriel shows up to uh, to Mary; she's going to get pregnant. So every time the angel Gabriel shows up, he's like, "Hey, this is going to happen. This will be the sign." this is going to happen. This will be the sign. He shows up to the shepherds. This is what's going to happen. This will be the sign. But he breaks, Luke is going to break the pattern here. And this is what he does. Um, He says, well, it says that uh, if we can follow along here, if I can find where I am. See, I'm off my notes, and now I need to find out where I am. Here we go. So, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you, verse 12. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. By the way, that word swaddling cloths, um, it's the same word when Jesus is killed on the cross. When they wrap him up, they put him in swaddling cloths. So, this is foreshadowing even of what is to come later But verse 13 is where he breaks pattern. Usually it's like, here's the message, here's the sign, here's the message, here's the sign, here's the message, here's the sign. But then, in verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now the word host I mean, what is a heavenly host? It sounds, like, it sounds like kind of like a really nice maitre d'. It's the heavenly host. Go put your name in with the heavenly host, right? And it's a 45-minute wait. It's okay. It'll go fast. Okay, you get the idea. Like, what is the heavenly host? I'm just foreshadowing your Christmas dinner. Um, but the word host is the word um, stratia, which every other place in the New Testament is translated as army. And so the heavenly host, what what appears is a multitude of the army of heaven. Like what shows up here is not just a bunch of angels, what shows up is an army. The army of heaven comes down. And this is an important point, an important break in light of how the passage starts. Caesar, the one who has consolidated power, stopped all war because people were afraid of him, the one who calls himself worthy of reverence, who calls himself son of God, who calls himself Lord, who is commanding all the people of the inhabited world to be counted so that he can receive tribute from them, God says, hey, what I'm going to do is I have something to say about that. And I'm going to send an army down To make sure, well, what they're going to do is they're going to sing. Because the time has not yet come for them to fight. This is important for us. God sends an army to sing. There will be a day where God will send his son back to to come in glory and power and to consolidate power, and it will not be good for the wicked. For the righteous, it will be joyous, but for the wicked, it will be bad. It will be a bad day for a lot of people who oppose God and his plans. That day is coming, but that day has not come. I think a lot of us want that day to come, and we're we're ready to fight. The thing is when God sends his son into a world where there's a leader who has overestimated his importance, and this is not just now, look, God has seen God has seen kingdoms come and go. It was the Hittites, and then after the Hittites, it was the Babylonians, and then after the Babylonians, it was the Persians, and then after the Persians, it was the Greeks, and after the Greeks, it was the Romans, and that's when God says, I think this is the right time. These kings have come and they've gone and they've all overestimated their importance. And after Jesus was born, there's going to be more kings who overestimate their importance. There's going to be more political leaders who overestimate their importance. There's going to be more political leaders who call for allegiance to them. But God says, look, I have something to say about that. And I'm going to send my angels to sing One day I'll send them to fight, but that day is not now. Jesus did not come to fight. He came to proclaim good news. And the angels come able to fight, but they just sing. And listen to what they sing. Glory in the highest to God. When, when, when you have this picture of a Caesar who oversteps his bounds and says, I want everybody in the known inhabited world to pay tribute to me. all God says, all right, cue the angel army. Go down, and I want you to tell them who they should give glory to. And in, in Greek, it's, it reads, glory in the highest to God. This is the world into which Jesus is born where there's a confusion about where glory should go to, where renown should go to, where praise should go to, where allegiance should go to. Glory in the highest to God. Peace on earth. To people of goodwill. Glory is this idea of weightiness, reverence, honor, brilliance, fame, Renown, reputation, reverence in the highest to God. And on earth, peace among those he favors. God has seen his fair share of pretenders who will grab and kill for power, who will intimidate with force, who will string people up publicly just to make a point and cement their own power and wealth. Who would steal his glory. And so God sends an army who shows up and says, We'd like to be heard. And there's going to be a clash. I think the interesting thing about the, the Gospel of Luke is as much as this, this Christmas passage is a, we oftentimes think about peace on earth. And there is, this is a season like Jesus comes to bring peace. Man, he comes to bring peace. He comes to bring joy. But this passage, this passage is, is foreshadowing a conflict that is to come. And as the gospel pr- progresses, you're going to see this conflict continues. Whether it's the Romans or the Jewish religious leaders, whatever they're gonna, whatever's going to happen, there's going to be a conflict. And even today, we still feel these pressures about who demands allegiance. Who do we serve? Who do we follow? Who deserves the highest allegiance? And gosh, even as we're entering it, I'm going to say it over and over, we're entering into a political, like an election year, a presidential election year. I don't know if you guys knew that. And there's going to be all kinds of rhetoric. There's going to be all kinds of demonization. There's going to be all kinds of claims of value and authority. Look, I, I think one way or another, however people vote, one thing we have to get down here, one thing we have to solidify here, glory to God in the highest. The highest glory goes to God, And we want Jesus to rule and reign. I wish Jesus was on the ballot, but you know what? We come every Sunday because he is on the ballot, and we're voting every Sunday. Every Sunday, we bring the highest praise, the highest praise, because when we walk out of these doors, we want to keep that alive in us and we come to be reminded week after week after week in this christmas season especially as we're going to our families we're going to people we're going around we just want to make sure look i follow jesus and i want to be like him i want to love like him i want to have compassion like him i want to be a person who is able to interact with the kind of people that he did because i don't typically have a lot of space for those like people like that I know you guys are fine with people who are kind of like a little hard to be around. You're fine with that. Like, I, I struggle, but Jesus seems to have this capacity to gather people around him that are just a bunch of misfits, and he just loves them up. Man, I just, there's something about how Jesus treats his people. Like a really good shepherd. Who knows his flock who calls his his sheep by name who's tender when he can be and is direct when he needs to be but he seems to thread that needle just right just right in our lives maybe so that we might have that same figure out how to thread that needle in our world where we get that blend of grace and truth all together there's no shortage of claims to glory in our world but in this christmas season we have to ask the question who am i going to ascribe fame recognition renown honor prestige greatness to is it going to be some brand some advertiser some political candidate or will it be jesus